History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 481st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly from California. I was going to say, you guys can probably tell we're not in the closet recording together. I'm in one space. Kelly's in the other. She's back in California with her dad who's in the hospital. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of you guys for your prayers and good thoughts and good energy and all that stuff. He's been very weak and things are touch and go. So we just ask that you continue to keep us in your prayers in regards to both of our fathers. On this episode, we're going to be featuring the Haunted Inns of Cape May. And this was suggested by our listener, Becky Fleming. Kelly, we're going to have a lot of places here to stay at in Cape May. There's a lot of haunted places there. Just got to get some time off to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Get a little bit of peace in our lives to do it, right? Yes, indeed. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Margaret, Stephanie with two Fs, Suzette, Deborah with an A-H, Claire, and Pam. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Naughty. Carnivorous plants are plants that derive some or most of their nutrients from trapping and consuming animals or protozoans, typically insects and other arthropods. These plants can be found on every continent, with the exception of Antarctica, and some can even be seen in movies like the cult classic Little Shop of Horrors, a la the killer Venus flytrap who lusts for human blood. These interesting plants secure their meals through various methods. Some utilize sticky, almost flypaper-type mucus lining to trap their meals. Others employ a snap-trap method for survival, and still others have hair-like appendages which point inward to force their prey to move towards the plant's digestive organ. These plants all rely on their meal coming to them, and they require a diet rich in nitrogen to survive. But what if their usual meal isn't so readily available? In higher altitudes, where insect prey is not so plentiful, a type of pitcher plant has taken to eating poop. Yes, you heard correctly. I said poop. This is the Nepenthes hemsleana pitcher plant found in the forests of Borneo. These plants can grow very large, some as tall as 10 feet in height, and they have developed a symbiotic relationship with the Carivula harwickii bat. The bats have found the large pitcher plants a convenient and safe place to roost during the day. Then they utilize the bowl, although not a porcelain one, to make their guano deposits. This keeps the plants thriving with rich nourishment. Carnivorous plants are certainly interesting and unique, but plants feasting on a fair of feces certainly is odd.
the dark. And now, this month in history. month of April on the 2nd, 1982, the Falkland Islands War began. This was an undeclared war between Argentina and the United Kingdom. This conflict was over two British dependent territories in the South Atlantic, the Falkland Islands and its territorial dependency, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, the latter being a British overseas territory in the Southern Atlantic Ocean near the tip of South America. Argentinian troops invaded and occupied the British colony. On April 5th, the British dispatched their naval task force and air force to engage the Argentinian forces before launching an amphibious attack. This ultimately ended the conflict in 74 days with an Argentine surrender on June 14th, returning the islands to British control. During the 10-week conflict, 649 Argentine military personnel, 255 British military personnel, and three Falkland Islanders were killed. This major dispute surrounding the territory's sovereignty stemmed from Argentine's assertion that the islands belonged to them and that the military action was justified to reclaim the islands. The British government regarded the action as an invasion of a territory that had been a crown colony since 1841. Falkland Islanders, who have been the primary inhabitants of the islands since the early 19th century, are primarily descendants of British settlers. They also strongly favor British sovereignty. Neither state officially declared war, although both governments declared the islands a war zone. Cape May in New Jersey is one of the oldest seaside resort towns in America. It has one of the largest collections of 19th century buildings in the country. 380 acres of the town are part of a historic district. Many of these historic locations are now inns that are reputedly haunted. They all are unique with their own character and charm, and at least one should be on your bucket list for a stay. I know many are on ours. Join us as we share the history and haunts of nearly a dozen haunted inns in Cape May. Cape May is nestled on the southern tip of New Jersey and was home for a time to the Ketchumetchi Indians of the Lenny Lenape tribe. This tribe believed that the shiny quartz pebbles that washed up on the beaches held some kind of power that would bring good fortune and well-being. Wouldn't that be nice, Kelly, if quartz could actually do that? Absolutely. I think that they do have some mystical powers. I, I love quartz. I do too. And I mean, that's why we think limestone sometimes has that spiritual energy is because of the quartz that's in it. Right. Early settlers and traders started to refer to these as Cape May diamonds. The largest of these is on display at the Cape May County Museum and weighs in at 1,800 carats. Wow. The numbers of the Ketchumetchi dwindled drastically due to illness and disease and by 1735 were almost non-existent. Those that were left were relocated to Oklahoma with other Lenape tribes. The first explorer to discover the island was Sir Henry Hudson, and he did this in 1609. 
It was later explored by Cornelius Jacobson May in 1621, who spelled his last name M-E-Y. And that is where it gets its name, although initially it was just called Cape Island. English colonists settled and built the island into a prosperous fishing and whaling colony. And by the mid-1700s, people started using it as a vacation destination. Visitors were brought in from Philadelphia by sloops, schooners, horse-drawn wagons, and stagecoaches. There were no official inns at the time, so guests were housed in residential homes and taverns. Eventually, there would be boarding houses and hotels added to the town. Cape May has a very haunting air about it. Every street seems to be oozing with spiritual activity, which is why so many places here are said to be haunted. First, we have Hotel Macomber. The hotel sits at 727 Beach Avenue, and when it was built in 1916, it was the largest frame structure east of the Mississippi River. The hotel was built in the late Victorian provincial shingle style, which is American in origin, and pushed back on the fancy ornamental patterns of the Victorian Queen Anne styling with plain shingled surfaces and re-embraced colonial American architecture. At the time, this was being used in many seaside cottages. The architect and builder are unknown. But the first owner was Sarah Davis, and its original name was the New Stockton Villa. The hotel had three and one-half stories above a raised basement, two-story porch, and a gabled roof on the front with shed dormers along the sides. The first floor opened into a lobby with a living room to the left. That room led out onto a glass-enclosed porch. Past the lobby and living room was a large dining room serviced by a large kitchen. The second and third floor had the exact same design with two suites at the forefront that featured their own large bathrooms, several smaller rooms with private baths, and then a couple of joined rooms that shared a bathroom. I'll take the private one, thanks. I know you will. <laughs> you like, I'm not doing no public bathroom. <laughs> Today, the Hotel Macomber is a family-run boutique hotel with the award-winning Union Park Restaurant. The hotel sits right across from the beach and has spectacular views. Despite its height, the hotel isn't equipped with an elevator, so you do need to be able to climb stairs to stay there. And I found that with almost all of these locations, there's no elevators, so you're going to have to climb stairs. The suites are called Captain Mays and come with a porch. The Cornelius rooms are oceanfront suites without porches. The Berths twos are rooms with two beds that offer ocean views and non-ocean views. The Jacobsons are standard rooms with lacy canopy beds. And finally, there's the osprey nest where you can actually hunt for fish. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the biggest oceanfront room with the most expense with the most expansive views. Probably hotel- expensive too. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. The hotel <laughs> offers the perfect setting for weddings, and even better for us, reportedly, the hotel has several ghosts. The original owner, Sarah Davis, had a hard life. She had a daughter named Cannell who died of encephalitis in the 1920s. Sarah couldn't get past her grief and eventually took her own life at the hotel in 1934. She loved the hotel and is said to have remained to make sure that things run smoothly. She turns on cheery music and does chores around the hotel, like unpacking for people and ironing clothes. Oh, man, she can come hang out with me anytime. No kidding. I hate ironing. (laughs) I do, too. Guests claim to see her coming down the stairs and standing by the check-in desk. And she may have been joined by her daughter, Cannell. People have seen the spirit of a little girl in the hotel, and psychics claim that she is Camel. Sarah isn't the only owner haunting the place. Another couple that ran the place are said to have returned to the hotel after death as well. Room 10 is thought to be the most haunted room in the hotel. The main ghost that haunts this room has been nicknamed the Trunk Lady. The spirits, okay. be- 
It's a great nickname. <laughs> Sorry, right? That tickled me. <laughs> The spirit is believed to belong to a hotel Macomber, a regular named Irene Wright, whom everyone called Miss Wright. She started coming to the hotel in the 1930s and always arrived at the hotel alone with a large trunk, hence the nickname. She never married and had no children. Miss Wright always stayed in room 10, wore lots of perfume, and talked everyone's ear off. It's thought that she died sometime in the 1970s and has returned in the afterlife to one of her favorite spots. Of course, she brings with her the phantom scent of perfume. Trust your nose picture. It may be a ghost. Guests and employees have reported hearing the sound of a trunk dragging down the hall. Her apparition has been seen rocking in one of the rocking chairs on the porch. And banging on doorways is attributed to her, too. Craig McManus is a well-known psychic in Cape May, and he's going to come up a lot on this episode. He's penned several books on the subject of Haunted Cape May. He told NewJersey.com that he sensed five ghosts during a seance at the Hotel Macomber. He said one was a woman, Irene Wright, a widow from Reading, Pennsylvania, affectionately known as the trunk lady who always stayed in room 10 with her steamer trunk. The room was active mostly during the months of June and November. I don't know why. I don't know if that's why, when she was mostly here or what have you. That's what I would imagine. McManus said that one night while staying in room 10, he was awakened twice by loud banging on the door. He jumped up, opened the door, only to find that no one was there. He was later told that he was the only visitor staying in the hotel that night. Eventually, he digitally recorded a woman's voice saying, I'm still here. A hardworking waitress who dates back to the Great Depression is another one of the ghosts here. The story here is that she was poor and would occasionally steal food. And one day she choked to death on a chicken bone. Her spirit has stayed here and she is angry. So she likes to move silverware and glasses around. She flickers the chandelier lights in the dining room, pushes people into the walk-in refrigerator, yikes, and her full-bodied apparition has been seen floating in the kitchen in a ragged dress. The basement harbors the spirit of a grumpy old man, probably because he's down in the basement. Who wants to be down there in the afterlife? No kidding. People call him the growler, and that is because he likes to growl and groan. He likes to knock things over, too. There are possibly other children ghosts here that sometimes play with cannel. During the summer, there are sounds of children talking and laughing when there are no children around. And a spirit known as the friendly farmer hangs out in the lobby and greets guests sometimes. And one room has an arguing couple that no one sees when they open the door. There definitely seems to be a large number of spirits hanging around this hotel. Next up, we have the Inn at 22 Jackson. And this inn is actually located at 22 Jackson, one of the busiest streets in Cape May. And is, of course, a restored Queen Anne Victorian. The inn is navy blue, purple, white, and outlined with lights. The inn is three stories and has a veranda on the first and second floors. The house has been through several owners, and each one has had their own haunting experiences. One of the owners, named Maria McFadden, would often feel as though someone was walking by her in the kitchen when she was the only person in the kitchen. Legends have claimed that the spirit here had been a nanny named Esmeralda who lived on the third floor turret, and she had supposedly died tragically in the house. But there's no records to back that up. However, there was a family who lived here in the 1950s named The Wolf, and the children had an imaginary playmate named Esmeralda. A psychic who walked the property believes the spirit here is named Anne, and she does seem to like the third floor. Next, we have the Windward House Inn, which apparently when I was looking it up online, Kelly is now closed. So I don't think this is a place you can stay at this time. 
Windward House Inn Bed and Breakfast is also located on Jackson Street at 24 Jackson Street. Not only is this the busiest and the nicest street to be on, but I've also heard it's the most haunted. They see people walking down the street that are apparitions all the time, apparently. Very cool. This bed and breakfast boasted over 30 years of hospitality, but appears to be closed today. It was built in 1905 in the Edwardian Victorian style with three porches. The family that built it lived in it until the 1940s. After it was sold, it was opened as guest cottages. And then in 1977, it was bought by Owen and Sandy Miller. And they opened this as the Windward House Inn. They filled the bed and breakfast with Victorian furniture. Some of the doors have stained glass and others have beveled glass. So they sound pretty fancy. Sandy Miller said that they've experienced some unexplainable things. Once they had a guest come to them and say that they thought a guest had been locked in the bathroom for a really long time and that perhaps something had happened to that person. The bathroom locked via a hook and eye system. So Sandy and her husband broke through an outside window and found that the bathroom was completely empty. It happened again two weeks later, but this time they just pushed hard on the door and broke the lock. And again, the bathroom was empty. And what fascinates me about this is it's a hook and eye system. So that's not like something that just kind of falls together. No, absolutely not. And what a bad place to be trapped as a spirit. (laughs) I would not want to be absolutely stuck in a bathroom. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on in bathrooms, but aside from the obvious, but I'm talking about (laughs) with spirits, but I wouldn't want to be trapped there. (laughs) A psychic believes that the restroom had once been a storage closet that previous owners had kept valuables inside. So perhaps that's why the door keeps getting locked. She also believed that there are two spirits in the house that mostly hang out on the first floor, a woman from a much earlier time and a man from the 20th century. There's also a ghost on the third floor. A guest awakened one night and heard the clicking of shoes across the floor like heels on wood. Only the floor in this room was carpeted. The woman heard the footsteps go inside the bathroom and she panicked that someone had gotten in the room. So she ran into the bathroom and found no one. This room has been called the wicker room and is said to be the most active. One guest saw the full-bodied apparition of a hazy woman sitting on the edge of the bed. The South Jersey Ghost Research Team got evidence that led them to believe an Irish maid is a spirit. We've heard that story a couple times where disembodied footsteps are heard as if they're going across a wood floor, even though there's now carpet. That always blows my mind. I know, same. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. And up next is the Angel of the Sea bed and breakfast. This place is truly glorious with a wraparound porch and intricate gingerbread details. It's a large bed and breakfast, and it's located at 5 Trenton Avenue, has 27 rooms that are spread out through two buildings, and this has been open since 1989. The rooms are Victorian-themed and full of charm. This was built in 1850 as a summer cottage for Philadelphia chemist William Waitman. Waitman had introduced quinine to the United States for malaria treatment. The house is not standing on its original site anymore, though. Get this, Kelly. In 1881, Waitman decided he would prefer an ocean view, and so he hired a bunch of farmers to move the house. But the house was too big for this to be accomplished. So the farmers decided to cut the house in half. Then they would move each section separately and then reconnect the house when they got them you know, to where they wanted to move them to. Oh, my word. (laughs) Like, how do you cut a house in half? And it's big. 
They accomplished this by rolling the sections on tree trunks using mules and horses for power. Wow. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) I mean, you know, when we see these things on a flatbed truck, we're like, how did they move a house on that? I can't imagine on a bunch of tree trunks that you're rolling across the ground. Right. Now, anybody who sees the end today can see that this is not two halves of a house that have been pushed together perfectly. You see, the farmers weren't able to do that. So they improvised by enclosing the sides of the house that weren't together. So now it looks more like it's two buildings, even though it started off as one. When Mr. Waitman died in 1905, the house was sold and it served a number of purposes from a hotel to a guest house to a restaurant. The house would move again after suffering significant damage during a 1962 nor'easter. It was going to be demolished, but Reverend Carl McIntyre bought the house and had both sections moved by flatbed truck to its current spot on Trenton. This house has been moved a lot. No kidding. You know, I'd really like a different ocean view, so let's just pick it up and plop it over here. (laughs) From 1962 to 1981, the Angel became a dormitory. By 1982, the place was uninhabitable and left abandoned until 1988. Developer John Gurton bought it with his wife, Barbara, and crews up to 75 people worked round the clock to get the Angel back to restored following original designs. The Angel opened a year later after $3.5 million and over 103,000 man hours of labor. John and Barbara sold the bed and breakfast to their daughter, Lori Weissel, in 1995, who ran it for the next 20 years. In 2015, Teresa and Ron Stanton bought the Angel of the Sea. Somewhere along all the moves, the angel seems to have picked up some spirits. People who have stayed here have experienced their beds vibrating, televisions turning off and on of their own accord, and strange photos. And now on to the Victorian Lace Inn. The Victorian Lace Inn was converted to condos in 2018. But before that, it was a bed and breakfast located at 901 Stockton Avenue. This had been built in the colonial revival style with cedar siding in 1869. Things that happen here include objects disappearing and reappearing, disembodied footsteps and furniture moving on its own. Paranormal investigator Cindy Starr Whitman stayed here with her husband, and they heard the footsteps and heard the sound of things moving around even when nothing was actually moving. She also said that when things were cleaned up and put away, they would reappear again. And now we have the Cape May Puffin Suites. And the haunts just continue on Jackson Street at 32 Jackson Street. This is home to the Cape May Puffin Suites, which are four individually owned and operated vacation rental condominiums. This location was designed in the Dutch colonial architectural style and features a large wraparound front porch. Investigators that have stayed at the inn have captured EVPs and gotten EMF spikes. Orbs are a common occurrence in pictures, too. Next up is the Peter Shields Inn. The Peter Shields Inn is the former summer cottage of wealthy businessman Peter Shields, of course. Shields hailed from Pittsburgh, and he joined a group of entrepreneurs that wanted to reclaim Cape May's former glory. So they set up the Cape May Real Estate Company in 1903. Shields was the president. Philadelphia architect Lloyd Titus designed the cottage in the Georgian Revival architectural style and it was completed in 1907. The Shields didn't stay long following two devastating things. The Cape May Real Estate Company went bankrupt, and the Shields' 15-year-old son, Earl, was killed in a boating accident. The family returned to Pittsburgh and sold the cottage. 
It eventually served as a private residence, an exclusive club for boat owners, the Tuna and Marlin Club, and now as the Peter Shields Inn. There are nine rooms and a restaurant. The spirit that haunts this inn is thought to be Earl, the Shields' son. Travel Channel's ghost stories featured the haunting here in 2010. Psychic Craig McManus told CapeMay.com, I can remember a few years ago getting a call from a woman who was staying at the Peter Shields Inn. She had asked if I would do a channeling session with her, which I agreed to do. It would be held in her room on the third floor of the house. As I walked into the expansive house and mounted Grand Staircase, I could sense the ghost of a young man. The woman working there at the time told me it was the ghost of Peter Shields. I would later research him to learn what I have just related in the above paragraphs. He was indeed a torn and defeated man finally resigning his post as president and leaving town in 1912. As I conducted the channeling for my client, the large bedroom door, which was closed, kept opening slowly, very slowly. The windows were closed and there was no noticeable draft, yet something was opening the door three times in a row. I invited whoever wanted to come in to join us, as long as they did not interrupt my channeling session. There was a definite presence in the room. It was not trying to communicate. It just watched us from the sidelines. I felt nothing but the feeling of being watched. Sometimes ghosts are inquisitive instead of being talkative. This ghost was giving me the silent treatment, and it eventually left the room. McManus returned to the inn the next spring and heard from staff that they thought they had a ghost named Ernest and that many of them had seen him. So I I don't know why they're getting Ernest instead of Earl because that's the Hmm. name that I saw for the son. So I'm not sure if this is somebody else or... We're getting a, I don't know, somebody has a wrong name somewhere. Miscommunication. Yes. Or maybe it's just trying to go along with the fact that we just did the Hemingway house and had Ernest Hemingway for that. I don't know. Could be. Hey, Ernie, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) McManus then said, after dinner, I made a trip to the restroom, which is located on the lower level in what used to be the home cellar. This area was also an after hours bar called the Tuna and Marlin Club in the 1940s and 50s. As I moved past a large bust of Shakespeare standing in the corner of the basement, I was overwhelmed with the dreadful feeling of remorse. Why is there a Shakespeare statue in the basement? I don't know. Not panic or anxiety, just sadness and despair. I just walked into something or someone that I was not about to take lightly. It was not a malevolent energy at all, just a strong one. Had I found Ernest or did Ernest find me? I raced upstairs to let a friend who was dining with us know what just happened. Someone either died down there or was murdered, I told her. My friend and her husband went downstairs next to check out the energy. On their return, they confirmed the strong feelings that they too could sense. Both friends were energy workers, and I felt they may be able to offer a solid second opinion when it came to sensing ghostly energies. Next, we have the Southern Mansion Bed and Breakfast. And this bed and breakfast is located at 720 Washington Street and was built in 1863 for Philadelphia industrialists George Allen. Architect Samuel Sloan designed the mansion in the Italianate villa style, and the construction was completed by Henry Philippi. The Victorian home is three stories and crowned by a cupola. It's framed by clapboard and has a front porch that surrounds three sides. George Allen and his descendants owned the house for 83 years. The last Allen to live here was Esther Merker, and when she died in 1946, her husband sold the whole house, including the furniture, for $8,000. I was like, are you crazy? Everything? I mean, that's nothing. Yeah, and well, this and mansion in, is huge. And even in 1946 money, that's that's nothing. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I guess he just wanted to unload it. 
I guess. The mansion was converted into a boarding house, and this caused structural weakness. The house was also painted a stark white. The mansion was poorly maintained, and by the 1980s, the license for the boarding house was revoked. In 1994, a family named Bray Wilds were vacationing in Cape May when they saw the horrible condition of the mansion. They purchased the house and went through all the furniture and artwork, salvaging what they could and filled 25 dumpsters with garbage. I'm glad they were able to salvage some of the furniture, because if you think this was a boarding house and had gone through all these people and everything and hadn't been taken care of, you'd think the furniture would just be trashed. I would imagine. I would totally go dumpster diving there and repurpose some stuff. (laughs) Well, you can imagine they're walking around town and they see this big, what used to be gorgeous mansion on a huge property. And it's just sitting there like dying the slow death. And they see the for sale sign. They're like, wow, okay, let's fix this thing. They began massive renovations, placing new I-beams for support and replacing all the electrical and plumbing. Five chimneys were rebuilt with the original bricks. The house was returned to its earth tone color and the slate and tin roofs, copper gutters, brackets, porches, soffits, trims, moldings, and fascia boards were replaced. The property had gardens at one time and these were replanted. The Southern Mansion was reopened in the spring of 1996 with further renovation to a new South Wing being completed in 1997. So you have this huge mansion It's, uh, you know, your big kind of square, rectangular, Victorian styling. And then that South Wing, it's not a little South Wing. It is a really long building. So they added a (laughs) lot to this. Nice. This inn claims to have the biggest suites of any of the bed and breakfast on Cape May. They host weddings here as well. And the mansion also hosts a couple of ghosts. The last descendant in the house, Esther, had been an alcoholic, and she finally died from that in the house. She likes to explode glasses, particularly during toasts at weddings. So you can imagine you got the best man. He stands up to toast the bride and groom. They all lift their glasses and bam, the glasses all explode. That's not a nice haunting. Yeah. (laughs) Not at all. One of the strangest stories about Esther comes out of the kitchen. The chef was mixing some batter when all of a sudden the colors green and purple bubbled up in the batter. And that bubbling up eventually exploded up onto the ceiling. Oh, my word. (laughs) I mean, I'm like, somebody didn't like whatever he was making, but I do love that the colors were green and purple. Me too. I was going to mention that. Those are (laughs) our our colors. Yes. (laughs) Owner Barbara Wilde said of Esther, it's just like she's saying, look at me. I lived here during the whole renovation and nothing ever bothered me. I'd feel it, but it wasn't scary. The South Jersey Ghost Research Group investigated in 2004, and several members were touched and cold spots were felt. And again, we have psychic Craig McManus, who claims that Esther is joined by another ghost who might be the real culprit behind the smashed glasses. This was Daniel Crilly, who had been one of the owners of the boarding house. Apparently, he would smash wine bottles in the house. Other unexplained things that happen in the inn include doors locking by themselves, eerie feelings, especially in lower meeting rooms, and the strong smell of roses. And next, we're on to the Queen Victoria Bed and Breakfast. This is located at 102 Ocean Street and is made up of three buildings, Prince Albert Hall, the House of Royals, and the Queen Victoria. Before any of these houses were built, the Columbia Hotel was here. The massive fire that destroyed much of Cape May in 1878 destroyed this hotel. The Queen Victoria building was built using several styles. Italianate Villa, this is the twin turret windows, Edwardian, the front porch, 
and a French-inspired mansard roof. The land here was purchased from Charles W. Potts by Douglas Gregory, who was a Delaware River pilot, and he had the home built for his family in 1881. The property has exchanged hands through the years and served as a community service center for the Navy, a medical practice, a summer boarding house, apartments, and now the inn, which was opened in 1981 by Dane and Joan Wells. They sold to Doug and Anna Marie McBain in 2004. There are nine guest rooms in this building. Prince Albert Hall was built in 1882 by Douglas Gregory as an investment property, and it was operated as a boarding house. Subsequent owners also ran it as a boarding house. In 1989, the house was renovated into the hotel it is today. There are six rooms in this building, and there's a large porch, third floor roof deck, and English gardens. The House of Royals was built in 1876 by Charles Shaw, who also built the Halfonte Hotel and the Emlyn Physic Estate. The first floor was a general store offering stationery, sundries, and patent medicines. The second floor was a gentleman's gambling club. This club had both private rooms and a large community room. The third floor was more than likely a brothel. This building survived the fire. It's the most beautifully decorated of the three buildings and has 10 rooms. One of the most well-known ghost stories connected to this property entails a woman descending from the third floor on the stairway and making her way to the front desk. She then disappeared. This is in the House of Royals, and many people believe that this is a young woman who worked in the brothel and that she probably died there. She brings with her the strong scent of perfume, cold spots, and she likes to bump into beds and people. Rooms end up in a disarray sometimes, and sometimes the electricity goes out completely on the third floor. And there is a story that a toilet exploded on the third floor, and the ghost was blamed for that. It exploded. Wow. I've heard of haunted bathrooms and, you know, haunted toilets, but wow, exploding a whole <laughs> toilet? It's pretty major. Next, we have the Halfonte Hotel. And this sits at 301 Howard Street and is one of the oldest original hotels here. It rises three stories with a Belvedere and two-story porch. This was built as a private home for Henry W. Sawyer in 1875. Sawyer also designed the house, and it was built by William Moore and Brothers. The house is covered in gingerbread accents. Additions were made in 1879. Sawyer sold the hotel in 1888. The Richmond Satterfield family bought the place in 1911 and ran the establishment for 50 years. Anne Ladock and Judy Bartella bought the hotel in 1978. The current owners, Robert and Linda Mullock, bought the Halfonte in 2008. There are several rooms and suites and two cottages for rent. The Magnolia Room hosts breakfast and dinner and the King Edward Bar serves up drinks. This hotel has no elevator and just recently got heat and air in the rooms, as in just in 2021. Can you imagine? It took it till 2021 I to cannot. have that. Good grief. There are no phones, no clocks, and no televisions in the rooms. Well, this is a good place to go if you need to unplug. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I stayed in Yellowstone in a cabin with my folks when I was a kid. I was just blown away that there was like no phones and no televisions in the rooms. Kind of nice. Yeah, it would be nice just to unplug. According to psychic Craig McManus, one of the main spirits here belongs to a young woman who's often seen holding a baby up in the cupola and looking towards the ocean. It's thought that she lost her husband at sea and she's watching and waiting for him. Haunting is most probably residual. 
Another spirit who is here seems to be a grumpy man. McManus was investigating one night and he caught an EVP of a male yelling, McManus, F you. My. I don't know what he <laughs> did. I'm like, did you poke the ghost or what? The Mullock family owns the hotel and Dylan Mullock was outside the hotel when he looked up and saw a figure walking in the hallway. There should have been no one in the hotel as Dylan was the only one there. He ran inside to catch the intruder and found that the hotel was indeed empty. And finally, we have Elaine's Cape May. Elaine's Cape May is located at 513 Lafayette Street. This is a true destination location and incorporates a boutique hotel, restaurant, Finney's Pub, and patio bar. And this place sits right next to the Washington Street Shopping Mall. The building was constructed in 1864 and was purchased by the Reed family in 1899, who made this a large plantation home for their family. The Reeds had one daughter who was named Emily, and she was a sickly child who eventually died in the house. This became the Winchester, a large tavern inn. Elaine's used to host the dinner theater and ghost tours. There are many ghost stories connected to this location. Emily's spirit is thought to still be here. She's either a prankster ghost or there's another spirit here who likes to play tricks. These include covering a room in feathers and hiding tools. What does she do? Bust open a pillow? That's what I'm assuming. <laughs> Emily is heard calling out for her mother and crying. A bartender has had several experiences with Emily, and he claims that he usually sees light rather than a full-bodied apparition. It's like a spectrum of light through a prison with all different colors like a rainbow. That sounds really pretty. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And you know, I'm always asking, can you manifest as a color? Right. <laughs> Guests have seen the spirit of a young lady wearing Victorian clothing. Even delivery people have seen the ghost. A man on a tour took a video of a cloud of light disappearing into the building. Other things experienced include disembodied laughter of children, batteries draining, and floral smells. The most haunted room is believed to be room six. Cape May is a quaint seaside getaway with plenty of Victorian architecture to enjoy. A step into this village is like stepping back in time which is something any of us can use. A chance to step away from the chaos of the real world. Perhaps that is why so many spirits are attracted to this area. We only covered the inns, but there are ghosts haunting so many other buildings and even the very streets. Maybe. Are these Cape May inns haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, we keep talking about having to visit Cape May. We definitely need to get that on our calendar at some point. I would love it. We'd love to have everybody check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Sweet dreams.
These plants can be found on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. I can never say Antarctica. I know it's such a tough one. I hate it too. I don't know why. And some can even be seen in movies like the Coke. Oh, what the f***? I'll go get the soap. The first floor lobby opened into a (laughs) (laughs) to its current spot on Trenton. Bought the hotel in 17th. Nope. Before it was even built. (laughs) 